Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, February 7th. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's it's a Chinese weather balloon. We discussed the concerns surrounding China's violation of U.S. and Canada airspace earlier this week with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. With the growing demand for electric vehicles, can Canada's electric grid keep up with the increased need for charging stations? We get some answers from Sunil Johal, VP of Public Policy at CSA Group and professor at the University of Toronto. The fountain of youth may be a myth, but aging well doesn't have to be. We get some tips to stay youthful beyond your years with Calgary-based health and fitness team Marcella Fortini and Garner Bleesk. And finally, it is Tech Tuesday. The Gadget Guy joins us with details on his side hustle, working on set on movie and TV productions, including the hit HBO show The Last of Us. China's not a country to be trifled with. They are a legitimate threat to the United States and Canada from a military perspective, from a defense perspective, from an intelligence perspective, and from a trade perspective. That was a clip from U.S. Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, commenting on the threat China poses after a so-called weather balloon violated U.S. and Canadian airspace last week. Joining us to talk about it is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Hi, Mercedes. Hey, Sue and Andy. Super topical discussion that you had, and obviously it was all the discussion both in Canada and the United States with that, well, what everybody pretty much believes was a spy balloon, right? But so this was not the first one that ever has flown over Canada and certainly over the United States too. Yeah, it turns out it's just the first one that we, the public, found out about. Uh, I talked to a source when this first started happening, and he said to me, you know, you guys all seem so worked up about this. I said, well, what what am I missing? China is flying what everyone is telling us is is a spy balloon over Canada. Is it it not a spy balloon going over Canada and the U.S.? And he said, oh, no, no, if it's like the other ones, it is. And I said, the other ones? And he said, oh, this has happened before. This is not uncommon even. Uh, But this is just sort of the first time that a government, because people saw it and it started to come up uh, and be discussed um, in media, has been forced to address it. But he said this is this is something that absolutely has happened before, uh, and not just in Canada and the U.S. It is a known tactic. We know the balloons are from China, um, and it's part of sort of this, this pattern of behavior. So I thought that was quite remarkable because mm-hmm. um, people were incensed and, and concerned that this was happening. Um, but it turns out that it's not setting a precedent or a new escalation. It's actually something that has been happening apparently for, for quite some time. So this one is more, you know, out in the open, so to speak, Mercedes, you know, obviously covered by media such as yourselves, ourselves here talking about it on QR Calgary. Uh, but further down the line, let's talk about this and the effect it might have on the already somewhat inflamed, tense, if you will, U.S.-China relationship. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely made it more tense because it's public. And again, keep in mind, like the government um, in, in Canada and the government in the United States are, are putting out very strong statements condemning this, but they've actually known about it for, for quite a bit of time. That doesn't change that it can still escalate things when it comes into the public um, arena. And, and the timing on this one, too, right? Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, was scheduled to travel to China. He canceled that trip. 
Um, he's not going to go to China when there is a spy balloon actively floating over the U.S. Everyone's talking about. But it was interesting to me because it's the same thing that happened um, when we broke the story about Canadian pilots being buzzed uh, by pilots in Chinese fighter jets getting you know, literally 20 feet off their ring, the wing and, and giving them the middle finger. Um, there was another story we had about how the Chinese were releasing chaff in the air, metal in the air, into Australian jets. And in that case, the Australians asked us to wait 24 hours before breaking the story because they were going to give us a statement. And instead, they put their prime minister out to announce it and did a press conference. In both these cases, there were statements of outrage that was put out by the government. But in both these cases, um, sources that I spoke to, and they were not just in Canada, told me these were repeated events. It wasn't once or twice, and that's why people got concerned. Um, and as a journalist, I ended up getting that information. So I think there's no question that there's a, a pattern of escalating Chinese behavior, but there's also a pattern of Western countries not wanting to talk about it in public, perhaps because they're trying to limit that level of escalation, or they view this as sort of now a set level of, of, of Chinese um, uh, behavior poking the boundaries from Beijing. So I find it really interesting that every time it comes out uh, the governments act really angry but every time I know it's been going on for mm. months or sometimes years before it comes to the attention of the media. Okay so you talked to the U.S. ambassador to Canada David Cohen what did he say he believes China's motivation is for flying these surveillance balloons over the U.S. and over Canada particularly? Uh, well so a couple of things here he he didn't really get into the motivations but what he did say is it's a reminder that China is is a serious threat to Canada and the United States. You know, this is a country that has a lot of capabilities, and they're obviously not afraid to be pretty direct at, at demonstrating them. Um, in terms of the balloon itself and why, I talked to some military intelligence folks, and they said, look, the reason why people say, what's the difference? There's already satellites. Um, a balloon is actually able to gather a lot more information because satellites pass over very quickly, so they have higher resolution. But because a balloon can just sit somewhere, it can take higher quality pictures, it, it moves more slowly, it can take them from different angles, and depending on what's on board, it could have things on there that have um, certain sensing requirements. That could be anything from trying to intercept communication or to detect certain chemicals and stuff in the air if they're looking for certain kinds of processing. So it's, it's not to be sort of dismissed as, oh, it's just a balloon and they have satellites. It has a different intent than the satellites, uh, and it basically allows for, for more specific intelligence to be gathered depending on what's on the balloon. And, of course, we're just still sort of getting information about what exactly was on this balloon now and and now also finding out information that the u.s was concerned about what might actually be on it uh and it looks like what they're what they're finding so far is they're saying maybe surveillance equipment um but of course we haven't gotten that and just my last quick point was uh the language around canada was interesting i was told by very senior sources it went through canadian airspace i wasn't told it actually flew over canadian territory um, and I was told to be very careful with my wording on that. So I'm not sure where this balloon's exact flight path was. Uh, maybe it did go over territory and they were still investigating it then. Remember, for a while, they thought there was actually a second incident in Canada. Mm -hmm. We don't really have clarity on what happened with that. Um, but again, if it's happened once, it's probably happened more than once, possibly, based on what we're now being told. And, yeah, I think we'll be gleaning more information mm -hmm. and hearing more about this as the recovery of that uh, balloon continues out of the ocean. Now, we're going to switch gears. Also this week, you spoke with Justice uh, Minister, Attorney General uh, David Lametti about uh, Bill C-75. Why are premiers urging the Liberal government to reverse course on the bill? 
So C-75 essentially changed some of the requirements for people to get bail. And and what some of the premiers are saying is that um, bail is now being granted in cases where uh, the person could be a danger to society. Justice Minister says, look, it's up to the Crown to prove someone's a danger to society so that they're not uh, released into the public. It's up to police to pick up people who are out on bail and, and violate their bail conditions and are wanted on a warrant. For example, Miles Sanderson, right, who carried out those horrific uh, stabbings at James Smith Creation. He was out on bail and he'd violated his bail and was supposed to be picked up. So it's sort of this blame game of the provinces saying the feds have made it too easy to get bail and that's specifically a concern around not just like everyone in general but violent repeat offenders. Uh, and you have the feds saying, well, actually, uh, they shouldn't be out in the first place if they're violent repeat offenders and it's not our bill. However, they are also saying they are open to making some changes, so they must think that there's something that's not working well there. And I think they have uh, perhaps picked up on the public mood of people being upset that in repeated cases they're hearing about um, people were out on, on bail, not after sort of minor offenses, but after violent and repeated ones. So I, I think you're going to see that reopened and then take a look at it. Um, but that that's where all this controversy comes up, uh, around Bill C-75. Good. I, I hope they've picked up on the public mood because I think people are really looking for some change here. So thank you so much for breaking it all down for us. As always, Mercedes, appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. The West Block, of course, re-airs Sundays at 11 a.m. on QR Calgary. More and more people are buying electric vehicles, but a lack of charging infrastructure is still a major challenge for drivers and, frankly, a barrier to further growth of the EV market. Joining us to talk about the issue and what needs to be done to prep for the EV future is Sunil Johal, Vice President of Public Policy at CSA Group and Professor of Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Good morning to you, Sunil. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Do we know across Canada at this point, I mean, do you, do you have any numbers in terms of how many charging stations exist versus how many vehicles there are out there? Yeah, so I mean, there are uh, somewhere around 20,000 charging stations across the country. Uh, and in terms of number of vehicles, electric vehicles um, across the country, you're probably looking at around 400 to 500,000 I mean, so those sound like large numbers, but if we think about uh, the fact that the federal government is mandated by 2035, all new uh, light vehicle sales must be zero emission vehicles. We're probably going to need to move that uh, 20, 30,000 charging points uh, up to the neighborhood of 500,000 to a million. So, I mean, we're a long way mm-hmm. from where we need to be in the in the medium term. I think because it's so new, Sunil, we have a hard time wrapping our head around it. If we look at a traditional vehicle and we uh, think about our own neighborhoods or even the side of the highway, we know where the gas stations are, just basically how many gas stations you'll see in your travels. But this is a different animal in that people can indeed have charging stations at home. So can you envision a time where we see, uh, you know, as many electric vehicle charging stations as we see gas stations? I don't, as you say, I don't know if we'll quite need that many public charging stations because many people will be charging their vehicles at home. But the real issue here is that uh, to date, about 85% of people who have purchased EVs in Canada are single, live in single-family homes. So 
that's fine, but we live in a country where about a third of all Canadians live in high-rise condo apartment type uh, dwelling. So how are we going to make sure that those people are able to charge their vehicles at home um, in the years to come? It's much more difficult and costly to retrofit, particularly an older apartment or condo um, with electric charging uh, capacity. So I mean, right now it's it's I mean it costs. There's a cost to it for a single-family home uh, owner or dweller, but um, the logistics aren't that difficult. It's much harder to do this in uh, non-single-family home settings. Sunil, what role does government play in the development of these charging stations, charging infrastructure for electric vehicles? At this point, does the government sort of fund any of that, or is that all sort of on you or a, a condo owner, for example, or that sort of thing? Yeah, so there are, there's a range of different approaches. I mean, the federal government certainly has um, incentive programs for people to purchase vehicles. There are also uh, programs to help people with the cost of installing a charger uh, in some of these multi-unit residential buildings. And provinces have different approaches. To, I mean, in, for example, in Alberta, the province is largely providing support to the municipalities like Edmonton and uh, Calgary to do this and and provide people with uh, easier access to charging infrastructure. But, but the challenge is uh, some of those programs are pretty restrictive in what they fund, so they might technically pay for kind of the, the cost of installing this infrastructure in an apartment, but they might not pay for the cost of putting an individual charging points so that you can individually meter uh, the charging in an apartment building, or they might not pay for the cost of an electrician uh, to develop a plan for the whole building. So, I mean, there's kind of unforeseen or uncovered uh, costs that make this a more daunting proposition for people. So, I mean, in our report for the CSA Public Policy Center, one of the things we look at is how can governments just uh, make sure that they're designing programs that are more inclusive for particularly those high-rise um, dwellers of condos and apartment buildings so that they're able to take advantage of these programs to the full extent uh, and not be left with extra costs that they're going to have to bear on their own. We are speaking with Sunil Johal, uh, Vice President, Public Policy at CSA Group and Professor of Public Policy at the University of Toronto. I, I'm wondering, outside looking in, I don't, do not own an electric vehicle, don't know much about them, but what are the different types of charging options available for electric vehicles? And I guess I'd draw the comparison with, with phones, for example. The Apple chargers, different than a Samsung, might be different than a Google uh, Pixel, for example. Are, are the charging cords all the same? Are the setups... Yeah, so I mean, there are a couple of different kinds of cords out there. I mean, so most famously, Tesla uses a slightly different um, cord and plug than, than many other vehicles. So that's an issue that we need to think about as well, is how do we make sure that these, uh, especially public charging stations along highway corridors, for example, are uh, accessible to everybody, regardless of the kind of vehicle you've got? And how do we make sure that in the years to come, that, uh, for example, Tesla's uh, charging infrastructure could be potentially opened up to people who don't drive a Tesla um, vehicle. So, I mean, those are issues that we also need to think about is the standardization. I mean, when you go to a gas station, you don't really have to worry about uh, is this uh, nozzle for the gas going to fit into my mm-hmm. to my car? You know it is, regardless if you're going to an SO or a Shell or Petro-Canada or what have you. So we're not quite at that level uh, yet, I mean, I think that's something that will emerge and market forces will, will kind of compel that from 
operators of these charging stations. I mean, they're going to want to be able to support everybody who might stop there and not just a subset of uh, vehicle owners. Getting some texts in, as you can imagine, Sunil, and somebody saying, you know, what happens when everybody gets home between 4 and 5 p.m. and has to plug in their car, and somebody else texting to say, the electric grid simply can't handle any of this without spending billions to upgrade across the country. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, Alberta's electricity system operator a couple of years ago put out a report estimating that if, if there were a high uptake of EVs in Alberta, so we're looking at kind of like 2 million vehicles on the road by 2040, um, peak demand from all of those cars charging at the same time would equal uh, almost 4,000 megawatts. So that's twice the amount of power that Calgary consumes for example. So, so there's that side of the equation too. It's not just enough to have individuals have access to charging ports. It's to make sure that the elect- electrons are running through the pipes and that we've got enough capacity to support all of those people charging uh, their vehicles. So, I mean, again, that's kind of where provinces and municipalities need to think about in the long term. What are reasonable projections for how many people are going to own electric vehicles and how do they make sure that they've got the capacity uh, in the in the power grid so that when people plug their cars in in 10, 15 years, along with many of their neighbours, that they're not going to be met with uh systems that are kind of having brownouts and aren't able to to meet the capacity needed. Incredible stuff. It's a conversation, mm-hmm. you know, that we're going to be having, I would think, yeah. uh, you know, in the coming years and very much having to, to address. So we appreciate your insights, Sunil. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Thanks for having me on. That is Sunil Johal, Vice President, Public Policy at CSA Group and a Professor, Public Policy at the University of Toronto. And the fountain of youth may be a myth, but aging doesn't have to be. Andy and I both saw her post on Facebook and thought, wow, we need to talk to her. We've had strength and fitness trainers Marcella Fortini and Garner Bleesk on before, but Marcella posted a picture with the caption, this is what 56 looks like. Marcella and Garner join us now to talk about it. Hi, team. Thanks so much for getting up early with us. Good morning. Okay. Good morning. Marcella, we're going to start with you because this was sure. your post specifically. You're 56 yeah. years old. You are in a bikini at the beach. And, I mean, you look amazing and, and good for you for showing it off. Tell us your secret, though, because I think there are a lot of women out there who think, you know, maybe when I hit that 50 mark, it's all over for me. But it's not, <laughs> is it? It's not. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I I was a little bit leery about posting that picture. And it was my daughter who, who strength trains as well, who said, you know, you should post that picture to give women, uh, you know, an idea that how important it is to strength train, how important it is to get in adequate protein in your diet so that, uh, you know, we maintain as much muscle mass as we age and just to keep moving. And that, uh, you know, it is a bit of a perk that, that our bodies can still look good. But really, we just want to really move well and age well as we uh, get older. All right, I want to go uh, break this down before we get to Garner because I've got some questions for Garner when it comes to protein specifically. Yeah. But, Marcella, you did give three points out, which I mm-hmm. thought was fabulous because I think a lot of the times when we want to reach our goals, we think it's going to be a 75-point list. You said <laughs> you get 10,000 steps per day. You do yeah. strength training and the protein when it comes to diet, a, a big focus. Uh, are you are you sugarcoating or literally these the three things that very much help you get to, to where you want to go? A hundred percent. I've always said to women to make sure that they um, are getting adequate amount of protein. I know that women are afraid to eat that amount of protein, 
But if you think of a, a caloric value in 30 to 40 grams of protein, like start your day off, it's, it's anywhere from 160 to 180 calories where we have no problem banging off a, a Starbucks muffin and coffee that can, you know, ring up to 700 calories in a, in a meal. Um, you know, you're better off getting the protein in. It keeps you full longer. It starts off your day. It maintains lean muscle mass. And then, yeah, I've been strength training. I didn't really start strength training till I was in my 40s. I did lots of fitness prior to that. But in my 40s is when I really started getting serious. And I think two to three days is, is good enough um, to start off with two days and move. We sit far too much um, at home. A lot of us are working from our homes. And, you know, over the past couple of years, I think, um, you know, it's, it has gotten worse with it's a bit of a perk to stay at home, but it's also not a perk because we're not doing the safe movement. We're not walking to our car, parking lot, lunchroom, visiting with other people in the office. We're sitting at our desks for so long and just to get up and move around a little bit more. Okay, so 10,000 steps a day, two, three, four times a week, a little bit of strength training. You say seven to eight hours of sleep every night, managing your stress and just kind of getting out and moving. Garner, let's go to you and talk about that protein because there's sort of, um, you know, a a mathematical equation, if you will, that that helps people kind of understand what they need to eat. Uh, Absolutely. It's um, uh, standard uh, accepted math that uh, one gram of protein per pound of body weight a day uh, for an active person is there to create protein synthesis and to be able to maintain uh, soft tissue, muscle mass, uh, injury repair, and uh, to supplement with your resistance training to actually build that strength. Um, So one gram is usually kind of an industry standard and all the science shows that that is what we need with 30 to 40 grams being at a meal, especially at breakfast time, because when we wake up, and this is important when we get older, is that our bodies are more likely to break down with age uh, and uh, definitely with inactivity. And as we sleep, we're, we're using up any energy that we have uh, consumed from the day before. So we wake up somewhat in a catabolic state where we want to actually burn soft tissue for energy. So getting that first bolus of protein in the morning uh, is most important to be able to get out of that catabolic state and make sure that we are maintaining um, the production and uh, repair of our muscle tissue. Some great points. We're going to have to leave it there for time, but thank you so much, uh, both of you. Very motivating, and uh, we appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Marcella Fortini, a strength and fitness trainer and certified pre- uh, precision nutrition coach, and Garner Bleesk. Uh, strength and fitness trainer on Instagram. You can find them at bandfit. 8.35 now, and it is our regular segment on Mornings with Sue and Andy, Tech Tuesday with the gadget guy, Mike Yanni, but this time with a twist. Mike joins us to share uh, details on his side hustle, which is working behind the scenes on movie and TV productions, including the hit HBO show, The Last of Us, which is what that music is from. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for joining us. 
Good morning. It's that that theme song alone just kind of gives me goosebumps. Uh, me too. It, it is a great, great show. And I understand you did three different jobs behind the scenes on The Last of Us. I did. I did. So I kind of came into The Last of Us about a quarter of the way through production. I was working with MGM on another production, uh, finished that, and then jumped on to HBO's uh, The Last of Us. And I got to say, you know, that six months of my life, what a whirlwind. But it's so crazy to sit back and see it and think, wow, it's amazing how it all came together and how good it looks. Um, one of the jobs I did was locations, and locations isn't exactly a, a sexy job in, in film. Um, you know, a lot of times it's just blocking off uh, areas, locking them down when we're shooting. Um, but I had a really cool role because I got to work out um, of the Boston quarantine zone. Do you remember, do you even watching it? So you yes. remember the yeah, first yeah. episode? Yeah, so that my, my office was one, through one of those doors. That's basically. cool. So, I mean, I would park on the on the street there in Boston and then, you know, walk into my office. But inside, what was cool, it was a lot of these sculptors. Uh, this is where the sets were all created. So I worked alongside uh, watching these sets come from, you know, they start as giant pieces of styrofoam. I didn't even realize you can get styrofoam this big, but some of them were 30 feet tall uh, by, you know, 10 feet around. And the sculptors would take these and then, form, um, you know, whether it was the facade of a store uh, or maybe it was a tree trunk or something, and they would create them over a few days. So you'd see it start as this piece of styrofoam, and then two days later, it was a tree, and you walk up to it, and it's like, I cannot believe this is just styrofoam. Mm. It was incredible. It's it's really magic that we're seeing on mm. the screen. Another one of your jobs, which I think is interesting, because I, I think this would be a lot of pressure, background casting. Tell us about this. Yeah, this was one of my favorite uh, parts of the job. Uh, background casting assistant. Uh, basically, you were helping the assistant directors pick who's going to be in the background. So, you know, you're hanging out with the background actors throughout the day, and then all of a sudden the director's like, well, I need 50 people in the background. They have to be walking down the street. So you would go through and pick who you think should be in that scene. But the cool thing was because of my previous experience with MGM with assistant directing, I was also able to place the background. So I don't think a lot of people know this, but everyone you see in the backgrounds of TV shows and, and movies and films, they're told what to do. It's all choreographed. They don't just wander out and, and figure it out. So you tell them, okay, you give them a prop, which is cool. You kind of have access to all the props. So you give them a prop and say, okay, walk across the street, but halfway across the street, stop and and start talking to this person and wait 10 seconds and then continue on walking across the street and then meet up with this person. And so all these assistant directors are kind of working together uh, to create this, this, you know, it's all choreographed in the background. It's fascinating how it all works. It's a well-run machine. That's pretty cool. Okay, so you mentioned assistant directing. Tell us about that. Are you the guy that goes the, that clapper thing and then it just <laughs> <No>. everything begins? <laughs> I wish. No, that's not my job. But it, it, basically you're helping the director uh, achieve what they want out of, of the shot. So you're really working with all the departments. You're kind of the eyes and ears on set. And you're, you're helping making it all come together. Uh, part of that is, of course, uh, you are helping uh, set the background. Uh, but there's, there's so many roles. You know, you're giving actors cues. Uh, in, I don't want to ruin anything, but, you know, the, you're helping people with, with stunts. So there was, there's one scene that's coming up in The Last of Us where, you know, a stunt person was in an outfit and they couldn't move. And I don't want to say why, but it was physically yeah. impossible for them to move. And yet they had this crazy stunt they had to do. So I had to make sure that they were in place and ready to go and talk to them and see that they're comfortable. And then, okay, you can let the director know, okay, yep, they're good to go. 
we can start rolling. Um, so there's so many you know aspects to being an assistant director. Um, it, yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. And that's the interesting thing is you just never knew what you were going to do when you went into set. Uh, every day was different. You never know what was going to come up. Um, and just walking through those sets were incredible. Even when the lights weren't yeah. on, uh, when they were empty, walking through and seeing the attention to detail that was actually mm-hmm. put into some of the sets. You know, like in the, the Boston Museum, you know, I walked through that set a few times and seeing that there were some fungus, little mushrooms that were an inch tall. It's like, well, why would you need that? You're never going to see that on camera. But there was just the attention to detail was second to none on, on all of those sets. Before we let you go, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you. You, you worked so closely with this. This was your, your life for six months when it comes to work. Uh, what are your thoughts when you sit down and watch the episodes? Uh, how, how does that feel for you? It's pretty incredible. It is interesting because there are days on set when you, you're like, oh, how is this going to come together? There's no way. And then you see it put all together, and it's like, wow, you know, we, we pulled it off. It looks absolutely amazing. Um, but I will say part of the magic is kind of gone because – I'll be watching it, and I can pick out all the landmarks in Calgary, like what was real and what was a set. Mm. So I'll think, oh, well, Joel and Ellie are, oh, yeah, I know where they are. They're running into that building. But as soon as they're in the building, I know that's a soundstage. That's not actually the building. So you don't want to watch it with me because I'll be talking the entire time saying, oh, that's not real. That's real. <laughs> you're you're that's that not guy. Real. Hey, before, I am that guy. Or I'll be like, I'm hiding behind that barrel over there giving the background cues. <laughs> hey, that's kind of funny, though. <laughs> so was it all, it was, uh, sorry, we had like two seconds, but it was all sets. It was, there's no CG in the movie, in the TV series? Oh, no, there's lots of CG. Okay. A lot of, yeah, it's a, it's a real mix of real building CG. Um, it's, yeah, lots of CG, It's though. awesome. You did a great job. Congratulations on your TV series, Mike. <laughs> Thanks. I wish I could take for it all. <laughs> <laughs> Wish you could too. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Make sure you watch The Last of Us. It is a fantastic series on HBO. That's Mike Yanni, the Gadget Guy. You can find all his stuff at Gadget Guy Mike, and he's got a YouTube channel. Just search Gadget Guy Mike Yanni.